is Steve Johnson. I know most of you guys, but there's a fair amount that I don't know. Um, so just by way of introduction, my wife right there, Tracy and I, we're, we've been going here about 22 years. So we have had the opportunity to really witness the transformation of the Gospel Tab. Um, not too many of you were here 22 years ago. And uh, just a place we love, we call home, we love all of you, love being part of this movement. We both serve in different ways, and I guess the way I serve that's most known to you all is as treasurer. So of those 22 years we've been here, I've been the treasurer for 18 years. And um, today is the money sermon, and I think that's why I got drafted. <laughs> it's also my first sermon ever. So I, I appreciate your prayers and your grace. And when Steve said this is a full service, that probably means we're going to get out late. I'll do my best. So I am going to preach on generosity, and I wanted to open that up with just more a practical family conversation. If you look in the, not the yellow card, but the white card, and I'm not going to dwell on this, but we don't talk about our finances much, but we do want to bring to the congregation's attention that it's a pretty grim year. We are minus $65,000 year to date. So that's not great. And I don't say that with any sense of panic or fear or any anxiety, just matter of factly, that's where we're at. Um, so the body's aware of the need. But we can face that as a challenge. Um, I guess in my flesh, I see it as a problem and I wanna fix it, right? And I don't think that's what we need to do. I thought of two things in response to that situation. One, we can grow our faith in God's provision and we can fully rely on him. And two, again, kind of matter of factly, God doesn't need our money. He doesn't. He desires our hearts and he's pleased to have us be part of his church and his kingdom. And I, this prayer was in my devotions, and I thought it just hit that nail on the head. Steadfast God, perhaps one of the greatest mysteries is why you continue to entrust the work of your kingdom into our clumsy hands. But we are forever grateful that you do not want to change the world without us. May we become the church you dream of. Amen. So... With that backdrop, I'm going to turn to my message, and as I, as I said, it's, it's about generosity, it's about money, it's about stewardship, so the Bible says a ton about that stuff. My challenge wasn't coming up with what to say. My challenge was how to say that efficiently <laughs> to fit into a 30 or 40 minute message. Just to, to lay that out statistically, the Bible has over 2,300 verses about money, wealth, and possessions. And that's two times more than about either prayer or faith. 15% of everything Jesus spoke 
related to money and possessions, 25% of Jesus' New Testament words dealt with biblical stewardship. 40% of the parables deal with money. The only subject Jesus taught more on was the kingdom of God. I think it's safe to say, for whatever reason, God found this topic and Jesus found this topic to be of high importance. And yet, how often do we teach and preach about that? I think honestly our cadence here is we preach on this once a year, maybe twice. We don't emphasize it, despite that heavy uh, content. One other verse that really strikes that home, Matthew 6 and 24 says, no one can serve two masters. So they're drawing this distinction, a really polarizing distinction. And it doesn't say God and the devil, it says God and money. You can't serve both God and money. So again, just to drive that home. Given all that wealth and breadth of verses and content in scripture, I'm gonna try to frame the message with just four really simple and basic verses and teach around that. And Savannah, you can bring them up one by one. The first one is Psalm 24 and one. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. And so this is framing the concept of stewardship. We think we own stuff. We think we own cars, money, houses. None of that stuff is ours. All the stuff is God's. And that's the starting point of our biblical stewardship. The second one is just John 3.16. And everybody knows that one. And you might ask, well, that's the essence of the gospel. Why is that in a message about generosity? But at the core, look what it says. God so loved that he gave. That is the essence of spiritual generosity. And it's at the core of our gospel, at the core of our salvation. God the Father gave his only son, and Jesus, our Savior, gave his entire life. Next one is Matthew 6, 21. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. That's just one of my favorites in this space. And speaks to a couple things. One, this kind of essential concept that the heart is really at the core of our giving and our generosity. The second one, I kind of view that as an attachment that our giving can be a form of investment. We're investing in the kingdom of God with our treasure. And the last thing that I like in this is you really have to care, read it carefully but it says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be. It didn't say it the other way around. It doesn't say where your heart is, your treasure will follow. So it's almost as if, if your heart is lagging, you have some ability to pull your heart along if you're willing to invest in the kingdom. Okay. Um, <laughs> so the first thing I wanted to tackle with that framing of those four verses is actually the tithe. When you hear messages about giving, I've, I've encountered two things. Either the pastor is going to come hard on the tithe with kind of a legalistic bent, or they're going to ignore it exists and not say a word about it. And I'm going to try to find some middle ground there. So the biblical tithe, tithe is Hebrew for 10%. And in the Old Testament, there is 
commandments, traditions that the people of God gave 10% back to the Lord. And I think there's even three different kinds of tithes, so if you add all that up, it gets a lot higher. So today, in Christian tradition, there's basically two views. One says the tithe is still commanded of Christians today. And it, that tithely thing that uh, Kiara put up there, you could really go deep on this if you go to the Tithely webpage. They explain all this. But at a basic level, two things that are the arguments behind that. Um, one is that the tithe was established before the Mosaic Covenant. So when Jesus fulfilled the covenant with the New Covenant, that thing was already in existence. There's also the argument that Jesus says some things in the gospel that affirms the Old Testament tithe. One basic example from Luke 11, he says, Woe to you, Pharisees, because you give God a tenth of your mint, your rue, all these herbs, but you neglect justice and the love of God. You should have practiced the latter without leaving the former undone. So you can see Jesus' words could give the reader the idea that you should do both. Um, but there's context there. The other view is that New Covenant Christians, as we are, are no longer under the Old Covenant. We're not commanded to tithe, but we're commanded to be generous. And so the idea there is we're all called to be like Christ, to grow in the image and likeness of Christ. And who, what man ever walked the face of the earth that was more generous than Jesus? And so if you, if you think about it, the second one, to be called to have the generosity of Jesus, is a much higher standard than 10%. Jesus gave all. I thought about that, and, and you, know, you heard my background, that I've been doing this a while here. In the context of an exercise, some of the leaders had to do around about 2007, when we called as co-pastors, Pastor Jim Eaton and Pastor Joel Repick. And anytime you call a pastor in the Alliance, you have to work with your district. And so we had the district superintendent come in, and he, he's a good godly man, and we were under his submission. But he definitely had a particular way he wanted to do things, and a particular way we had to follow. As an example, he would often come to the meetings with a whiteboard and do a lot of writing on the whiteboard, and we had to follow all this. Michael's smiling because he lived through this. One of those exercises was called PCA. The P stand for preferences, C convictions, A absolutes. And I probably remember that to this day because it was somewhat use useful exercise. So in determining if we should call co-pastors, Jim and Joel, that was one of the things we had to look at Crestmont Alliance Church and what are our preferences, what are our convictions, what are our absolutes? An absolute is something that's from the infallible word of God. You know, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The wages of sin are death. Gift of God is eternal life. So if, you know, if you're in a church that takes the position that something is an absolute, but it's contrary to the word of God, you should probably run from there. On the other side is the preferences. And that's things that really aren't biblical, just things you prefer. Do you like this carpet? 
We used to have pews in here. Over the summer, we all went this way. Now we're back. <laughs> These are preferences. And people do leave the church over preferences. But I would tell you, you really shouldn't, because if you go somewhere else, you're going to have the same preference battles that you had here. Um, so, yeah. And in the middle, you have these convictions. And so they're not biblical absolutes, but they're things that reasonable, godly people searching the scriptures, searching their hearts, can come to different conclusions on. And so that's simply where I land on the tithe. I'm sure there are people in this room that take the conviction that the tithe is in place today, and they follow it. And there's people in this room that say that is an old covenant. I'm under the new covenant. I give my giving is by grace. I would say that's not to divide us, but to unify us. Um, we, we can agree on generosity being modeled by Jesus Christ. And if you are a tither, God bless you. Keep doing it. Um, as long as your heart is right. Because the tithe, for me, always had some luggage to it. When you couldn't tithe, when I couldn't tithe, you felt guilt or shame, right? You were in a place of giving from compliance or legalism. Well, the same thing when you're able to tithe, you haven't arrived. It's not a matter of pride. If that's your heart, I'm prideful because I can afford to give 10%. That's not godly either. But if you can give from a place of generosity modeling the generosity of Jesus Christ. And that doesn't happen on day one, of course. Romans 12, we're being transformed, our sanctification, as we grow in the image and likeness of Christ, generosity should grow in us. Importantly, in that dialogue, in that debate, none of that is about salvation. None of that is about how much God loves you. If you give two cents or you give 20%, God loves you. He cherishes you. If you know the Lord Jesus as your Savior, you have salvation. You don't have to give a dime. You don't earn it with your pay. Amen? I want to share next on the board here our value statement for the Gospel tab on generosity. The Gospel tab values generosity. Radical mission-motivated generosity is the pattern of the New Testament. We embrace simplicity and contentment rather than the idolatries of materialism and money. We celebrate the blessing of giving as we share our resources with one another, especially the poor. We open our homes and tables for the purpose of love and mission. That's, for me, brilliant and summarizes my sermon in four sentences. So y'all can go home. I'm going to work my way through this some more and unpack some more. The next point I want to convey is that generosity is really from the heart, a matter of the heart, and it is joyful worship of our Lord. Isaiah 43 describes us as the people I, God, formed myself that they may proclaim my praise. We were created to worship God. My point on this is worship has many forms, many vehicles. 
it's not only the praise and worship we just did, praying, giving is a form of worship. A simple example of that from John 12, it's Mary's offering of nard. Now nard's a funny word, kind of sounds like gnarly lard, but it's really expensive perfume, all right? So if you can get over that, um, Mary pours out very expensive perfume on Jesus' feet. Her heart is full of worship. She wipes it with her hair and her tears, and he's pleased by this. He sees her heart, and he recognizes her worship. Judas is in the room, and he condemns it. He says, that was a, a whole lot of money. What a waste. You should have sold that perfume and given the money to the poor. And Jesus says, that perfume was for my burial. Her act was beautiful, and you always have the poor. Now, Jesus was not <laughs> saying, turning his back on the poor. No one was closer to the poor than Jesus, but he was acknowledging the heart of Mary in a worshipful act of giving. Oswald Chambers, he wrote, uh, My Utmost for His Highest, one of very popular daily devotional. He says this, Worship is giving God the best that he has given you. Be careful what you do with the best you have. Whenever you get a blessing from God, give it back to him as a love gift. Take time to meditate before God and offer the blessing back to him in deliberate act of worship. If you hoard a thing for yourself, it will turn into spiritual dry rot, as the manna did when it was hoarded. God will never let you hold a spiritual thing for yourself. It has to be given back to him that he may make it a blessing to others. Five things I highlight when we worship through giving. We acknowledge God as our sovereign Lord and the source of our blessing. We express our personal allegiance to him. We express thanksgiving and overflowing gratitude towards God. It breaks us from the guilt or obligation as the motivation of our giving. It allows us to focus on the condition of our heart, not the percentage or the amount of our gift. Generosity is a matter of the heart. It reveals our heart toward God. Mother Teresa said this, we can do not great things, only small things with great love. What is important is not how much you give or do, but how much love you put into doing or giving it. So I'm gonna to transition to my next piece here. Savannah, if you can put up the one with three words. And the idea here is that these three things are closely intertwined and they have to be held in alignment. John Weber, he, he has discipled me greatly, and one of the things he does a teaching on is called the trichotomy of man. And it's this idea that there's spirit, soul, and body. The spirit is your innermost being, the redeemed part of you, the closest to God. The soul is your mind, your emotions, your feelings, and the body is your physical body and senses. And that those things have to be held in alignment uh, to keep you out of sin, as an example. 
And also the idea that the enemy throws hooks into those things and pulls on them to get you out of alignment. And I, I drew a parallel with these things, that there's this concept of these being in alignment and that the enemy uses hooks to throw them out of alignment. And I'll just give two examples to talk through that with you. In the first one, spirit, mind, body. Say you woke up, stumble out of bed, stub your toe, it's bad. It's bleeding, bruised, you cuss, bleep. Your wife says, goodness, are you okay? And you bark back at her like, shut up, I'm dealing with this. And then you probably fight for three days. So in that instance, the body has a hook, your emotions from anger to rage had a hook, and you've sinned all over the place against God and your, your wife. <clears throat> so I want to draw a parallel example on this, generosity, stewardship, contentment. I don't think Devante's here, right? Okay. I'm going to use him. It's a made-up example. It just... The reason I picked Devante is because one time he told me he likes Teslas. It's one of his favorite cars. So say he's scrolling social and he sees an ad for a Tesla. It's a little hook of his contentment. That's a really nice car. I don't have a car like that. He clicks on it. You know when you click on one of those, then you get it every day. So every day he's getting a little hook. A few weeks later, his neighbor, two doors down, let's call him Pastor Joel. <laughs> He's not here either. <laughs> let's just say theoretically, and this wouldn't happen, Pastor Joel is a very disciplined spender, in my experience, except for shoes and tattoos. <laughs> let's say Pastor Joel showed up with a brand new Tesla parked outside. Then, first thing Devante says is, what in the world is that Western PA Alliance paying him? <laughs> and then he has to see that Tesla every morning, every night, and the hooks get stronger and stronger. Till one day, he breaks down, he goes to the Tesla dealer. Comes home to Kiara. Guess what, honey? <laughs> you can imagine how that goes. So then two or three days later, when he finds the shoe in his behind, <laughs> he grovels back to the dealer and says, I need to take this back. And they say, you bought that for $85,000, but you signed the paper and took it off, so it's depreciated. We can only give you eighty. So you can see, his contentment led to poor stewardship, impacted for months or years his ability to be generous. So that, that's the point I'm trying to draw there. One of the primary hooks of the enemy is a mentality of scarcity. And the point there is there is no scarcity in God's kingdom, in God's economy. His resources are limitless. What do we mean by scarcity? If you think, like, all what happened in the pandemic, things got scarce. People were hoarding toilet paper, right? That is a scarcity mentality. Like, we're going to run out of toilet paper, so we're going to do some irrational things. Stack it up in our garage. 
instead of just taking one. A collective scarcity mindset has invaded the global consciousness. In times of uncertainty, it's a natural response. Our way of thinking changes when the resources we need seem elusive, whether because of supply chain issues, labor shortage, inflation, or some other problem, it's out of our control. So anxiety levels rise. I have a real life example of this from my childhood. And I didn't share, but many of you know, my, I'm a preacher's kid. So one of the churches we were in when I was about 17 um, experienced a similar situation to what we're in today, financial deficit. And my dad came home one night from a leadership meeting and they cut his salary in half, unilaterally, immediately, not much else to say. You sometimes hear about church hurt. That hurt, hurt me. It's a wound I had for, you know, a lot of years. Um, but it also shaped who I am as a leader in this church and how I relate to money. Um, so I can't say it was all bad. I should also say because of that, we couldn't afford to live there anymore, so we had to move. So part of my wound was moving my senior year. Nobody wants to do that, right? But in that, so, so one, that's a scarcity mi mindset. But in that, I had opportunities to witness God's provision and radical generosity. We had this guy in our church. His name was Jim Miller. He was a little eccentric. Kind of had eyes that went, you know. <laughs> he, he would come to our house with his trunk full of containers full of gasoline. And instead of giving my dad money for gas, he carried, you know, transport 20 gallons of gas, come and, you know, pour it in. And he was an older guy, shaky, there's gas going everywhere. I mean, it was probably not safe. But the heart of that guy to come to fill that need. The other thing in terms of provision, my dad always had a little bit of a side hustle that he, he was a woodworker. And I can't tell you how many times we had a, a financial need or a burden and he sold some piece of woodwork that he had made. And even to the penny or the dollar, it, in that case, it met the need. Couldn't tell you how many times that happened. So God works in all these things. The point about scarcity is it can distort our truth about who God is. So when, sometimes when you get a new person doing sermons, you use this framework. Who is God? Who am I in light of who God is? What is God saying? And what am I going to do about it? But it distorts that first question. Who is God? If you don't view him as provider unlimited, he spoke it into existence. He's our creator. He's our sustainer. He's Jehovah Jireh. If you don't have that view, if your scarcity distorts that view, you may act irrationally. I love the verse 2 Corinthians 8 talks about the collection for the Lord's people. I won't read the whole thing, but it says, I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability. Now, how did they do that? How can you give beyond your ability if there's a scarcity? Their resources, even though they gave beyond their ability, were limitless. They were giving from God's economy. Next, I'm going to turn just a few things about stewardship. And I do find stewardship to be 
essential to the Christian walk, to our faith, and helpful. It's an enabler of generosity. That's how I would say that. Uh, I, I read from Psalm 24 and 1, the starting point that the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. What is a steward? A steward is a person who manages another's property or financial affairs. We are stewards of what God has given us. Again, not our stuff. It's his stuff. We're just looking over it. A few points on stewardship, and I'm going to couch this, that these are more as proverbs, not as absolutes, but as guiding principles. A proverb is a way to breathe God's wisdom and life into a situation. They point to a usual and expected outcome, but they're not absolutes and they're not equivalent to God's promises. First would be in terms of stewardship, that debt is dangerous. Debt, if you take on debt, it has the ability to pull you out of alignment and hinder your ability to be generous. An example, Proverb 22 and 7, the borrower is a slave to the lender. And I can say this from my own experience that through a lot of hard work and effort, we have been able to live debt free. And that brings a level of freedom and an ability to be generous that with that debt, you simply can't realize. And so again, as a proverb, if you can eliminate debt from your life, it enables generosity. And there's also so-called investment debt. We buy a house, we take a mortgage. We go to college, we take student loans. Gets us a better job. I'm not saying that's any way bad or sinful, but that the elimination from debt is an enabler for generosity. Another similar one is gambling. I imagine in this room, there's probably some folks that gamble. Could be scratchers, slots, sports betting, I don't know. I would also equate it to get rich quick schemes. If you're a day trader, you're trading cryptocurrency, these are highly volatile things. Proverbs 13 and 11 says, wealth gained hastily will dwindle, but whoever gathers little by little will increase it. Again, just principles of stewardship. Next thing, real quickly, Savannah, can you put up the four images? For the sake of time, I'm going to fly through this. The lower one, that's my car. I don't know if you can see that, but down there on the seat, you see all that black tape? That's my personal hooks. I, I want to get a couple more years out of that car, but my leather seat cracked. So I got it all covered up with black tape. And every day I get in there, I'm like, oh, discontentment. And I have to fight that off. But the point on the car, cars are one of the worst things you can buy. You take on debt, they depreciate immediately. You just need a safe, reliable ride to work. Also, easy to breed discontentment. We all want the flashy Tesla. Take a Honda Civic. <laughs> yeah. um, the iced tea. That is kind of a private joke with Tracy and I, but my very first Christmas with her, 26 years ago, I got her a box of iced teaspoons for Christmas. Twelve ninety nine. 
she was not thrilled. <laughs> but we joke about it today because so often, whether it's Christmas or another holiday, another celebration, we go and buy stuff we don't need and then we throw it out two years later. We don't need to do that. Stewardship is not romantic. It's more practical, but it stands the test of time. We're going to will those spoons down to our kids. <laughs> Isaac is going to get four. Lauren's going to get four. <clears throat> the home is just another example. G contrary to the car, generally home ownership is a good form of stewardship. If you take a mortgage, you're paying the, you, every month, you're growing equity. If you take care of your house, you cut the grass, you paint it, you plant flowers, the market value it generally, it's going to go up. And then the last one, that's a Wi-Fi box. And that was representing kind of media, social media or non-social. Practical thing there, we were with a provider that had the triple play. We hadn't used a regular phone in years, but you couldn't get rid of that phone and save any money, so we always kept it. We finally cut the cord. Cutting the cord, we saved $1,400 a year. Then you have the practical things. How much stewardship of our time do we waste on media, social media or other? I know kids, you, you got the app, you can tell, like some kid told me, eight hours. I'm like, you know in three days you wasted a day. And so yeah, just a way to look at your stewardship. Next thing I want to get to is a point that generosity invests in the kingdom of God. Kind of still using the word giving, you feel like, ah, oh, I'm giving it away. But if you're investing in the kingdom, it means what you, what you planted is going to grow exponentially. It's going to reap rewards. It's going to increase your own interest and passion in the kingdom of God. And it's going to change your perspective from an obligation to one of excitement. I'm giving to this thing because the Lord is blessing it and it's reaching people with the gospel of Jesus Christ. An example of that is the, the parable of the talents. I don't need to read that, but you know, one guy got five talents, one guy got two, one got one. The two the, with the five and the two, they doubled their money. The master said, well done, good and faithful servant. The one buried the one. Kind of a scarcity mentality, they buried it and they were condemned for it. I think that the gospel encourages us to take faith-filled risks with our resources. And I think it discourages us from burying them and having a scarcity or a hoarding mindset. The, the, the verse I had there, where your treasure is, there will your heart be. And that's you know so true. Uh, in my company, I get I get I have the ability to buy stock of the company at a discount, and so you get it at a discount. Sounds worth doing, and then you own a part of the company, and it changes how you think about how you do your work. Because my work has an impact on this thing I own, and how much I get as a dividend, and how much that thing grows, changes my heart towards my workplace and my employer. The same when you invest in the kingdom of God. And I'm getting towards the end here. The next thing to cover is having heard all that, 
how do we know when to give, what to give, how much to give? And it was interesting that we had that seek the Lord in our reading today, because that's what's written on my paper. I really do believe that is an essential way to inform your giving, is seek the Lord. Pray, ask Him, what would you have me to give, Lord? I don't think it's unique to me, but I honestly feel when I have a need placed before me that I hear that from God. You should give X. And I've tried to practice that and respond to it, and God has blessed that in my life. I think um, different sermon, Michael and Brooke, you guys had shared. You guys write something down on a piece of paper. I got five bucks. She got five bucks. Wow, God affirmed it, and you didn't talk to each other. And, and so, you know, just another way to think about it. I have a story about this, too. So recently, I was to have breakfast with a leader from one of our missional outposts. And they're here today, so I'll be gracious. But they stood me up. You could have guessed, but <laughs> thank you, Jim. So I, we were meeting at Yanni's. And if you don't know, that's like where business gets done in Aliquippa, Yanni. <clears throat> so I, I had plans with Jim. Didn't work out. I text him, hey, I'm at the booth. I got a cup of coffee. Come on in. He's like, I'm in a different state. <clears throat> so I tried to call Tracy, but she was not available. I was going to say, come on down, I'll order your breakfast. Um, as I was going into Yanni's that morning, an older woman walking with a cane was behind me several steps. I probably had to wait 10 seconds for her to get to the door, but I waited. And you know, Yanni's has double door. So yeah, I had to hold the door once. Hey, you know, hold the door again. And we just exchanged pleasantries, nothing more than that. <clears throat> and I don't know if she saw me sitting there and looking dejected. I wasn't that dejected, Jim. I got over it. Um, but when I got to pay, the waitress said, that lady paid. And this is how I do it. You're not touching it. You know, waitress down at Yoni's, you don't mess with that. So I was like, holy crap, you know? That was amazing. And, and to be honest, she had no business paying for my breakfast. The other part of the story is I'm sitting there alone in the booth, and there's this Latino family that came in, and they're both sitting on the same side, so they're looking right at me. And they didn't speak English. And they're trying to order their breakfast. And the lady's like, do you want hash browns or do you want home fries? And I can't answer that in English. I always have to have that spelled out, which one's which? And they're trying to navigate that in Spanglish. It wasn't going well. I had honestly the instant in my head, you should buy them breakfast. I didn't do it. And that all happened before this lady bought mine. Then I got out in the car and I was convicted. I was like, I was going there planning to buy my breakfast and Jim's. That's two. I got mine bought. I could have bought their two and been even. And I didn't do it. And then when I left, I said to that lady, you, you blessed me. 
She's like, no, young man, you blessed me. Good to be called a young man when you're 50. <laughs> so um, it was clear from my interaction with her, we were both believers, and we saw the joy on each other. Um, so man, and then the fact that I didn't listen, I messed up, and I didn't correct it. You know, I confess that. I, I blew it. It was a God story in the making, and I messed it up. But when you hear that audible call, respond to this. You got to do it. But he gives us new opportunities every day. So that as we ease into the closing here, we got to listen. What is God saying, and what am I going to do about it? Last thing on my paper is that radical generosity is evidence of being spirit-filled. In Steve's message, you know, we talked a lot in the vision about this church being a spirit-filled church full of individuals who are full of the spirit. We often correlate that to kind of the more manifest gifts, things like prophecy and words of knowledge. But generosity is a motivational gift. Provided in Romans 12, it says, if your gift is a giving, then give generously. And our flesh is not naturally inclined to be generous. It's by the Holy Spirit that we're generous. What I submit to you for the Gospel tab is that in being Spirit-filled, this is a church where a spirit of generosity rests. And that we have plenty of examples. I'm just going to give you three or four. The parking lot, that's not too fun. But we gave like $50,000 to repave that parking lot. People gave to that. What would they give to real ministry? Then two years later, we had to do these air conditioners. I can get that one because nobody wants to be hot. That was like $20,000 we raised like that. How about during the pandemic? We usually ran a benevolent fund. That's where we give to the community or members of our body that are in need. We usually ran a, a benevolence fund balance of three or $4,000. In the pandemic, that grew to over $10,000. You may recall, dear, at the beginning of the pandemic, there was a, apartment buildings in Aliquippa that were flooded. They had an emergency situation. And they needed mattresses. Somehow my wife got pulled into that. We had like 20 mattresses out there. Then we go down in the COVID, we, it was raining. We had those masks on, dripping wet, carrying mattresses into this place. And it was paid for immediately. The balance didn't change. Money in, money out, met this need of our community. One last example of that. I think it was also during the pandemic. There's a leader in our community, different church, but somebody that's close to us somebody that often speaks prophetically into this church and into its leaders. And that person felt f led by the Lord to ask Joel to meet a need he had, his family had. If I recall correctly, I believe it related to a family emergency and they needed some airfare. Could be wrong. It was about twelve or $1,300. And Pastor Joel brought that before the body. And he just called for it to be met. And two things I remember about that. 
we, we laid the gifts here. One was one of the leaders in our network. Good looking guy with a lot of tattoos. That's about a third of the people in here. He like got up, took everything he had, and was like, and that just started this ruckus. People just got up, dropped their money. It, it went wild. And the need, whatever it was, $1,200, it was received $3,000. The other thing about that that probably only I know, there was a young person there that day. They have a connection to our church, but they don't normally attend here. Say a 20, in their 20s. That person, who I would say had no business doing that, dropped $1,000 on that stage. Radical generosity that nobody would know about. I saw that person not too long ago. They're doing just fine. I don't think they missed any meals. They still have a pillow. I'm going to close with two things. You can put up the closing prayer, Savannah. Um, I've had repeatedly this kind of visual about giving of the clenched fist and the open palm. And just, you know, do with me. You clench your fist and you think you're holding something of value gold coins or diamonds, and you drop one, you lose a lot. And it hurts a little bit even to hold that. And in that clenched fist moment, we can confess all that stuff we messed up about our resources, how our heart was, how we withheld, how we didn't have faith, how we judged how somebody else gave how we walked across the other side of the street to avoid a homeless person. All of that. And in an act of repentance, turning from, can open the palm. And rather than that limited resource of a you know, handful of diamonds, imagine a spring of living water just trickling into your hands. And you can only collect a little pool there, but it never runs dry. You turn to the left, you turn to the right. It's splashing. It's getting on others. You spread it around. You take it with you in your workplace. That's still running. Take it to the store. It's still running. And those resources are limitless and impacting the lives of others. Let's say this prayer together with me. And, and where it says me or... Use, use the plural, if you know what I mean. Lord Jesus, teach us to be generous. Teach us to serve you as you deserve, to give and not to count the cost, to fight and not heed the wounds, to toil and not to seek for rest, to labor and not seek reward, except that of knowing that I do your will. Amen.